This morning, uh, we're going to start a new series. It's going to be a short series, as you can see, titled Get Off My Lawn. Um, Our two texts that we're going to be looking at today, and so if you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn open and and hold them in readiness. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 17 and then John chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's okay. There's one in the pew in front of you, or pull out your phone, your tablet, whatever you've got. Uh, and, and, and get ready. As soon as I came here, I immediately uh, irked Eric Dush, who's not here this morning, so I can't make fun of him. But I irked him immediately because he would contact me on Monday or Tuesday morning and say, hey, what's the title for your sermon? Because he would upload them and put them online. And my answer was always like, Romans 6 or Hebrews 4 or whatever the text was that I was preaching on that Sunday morning. He's like, no man, you got to do better than that, right? We want people to click on this link and Romans 6 is not compelling enough. And I'm like, the Bible is always compelling enough, buddy. (laughs) And so uh, he immediately kind of ran into grumpy old man Jordan, which then became a running joke of a sermon series that he said I needed to do called Get Off My Lawn. Well, Paul comes on board in January and immediately runs into old codger Jordan because he's in the office next to me. Now I realize that the beard kind of actually gives it away, doesn't it? That's such a great personality trait. Everybody loves it. And uh, so he, he was uh, immediately struck by the title as well and said, you have to do this when we've got an opening. And what neither one of them knew is I've actually yelled at kids and told them to get off my lawn. No joke. We're in Tennessee and we're at... Um, we're, we're renting a condo, and there's a series. There's four condo buildings, and they're park, big parking lot right, right between us. And then uh, right next to us, there's a, an old rusty barbed wire fence and a big yard with a big house. And in this big house, a teenager lived already, right? Bad story. And he had a dirt bike, and he would just run that dirt bike around that big yard. Well, between the barbed wire fence, uh, there was a little, like, slot just large enough for a person or a dirt bike to pass through. And he would run that dirt bike down um, our parking lot, kind of turn around, and then gun it, you know, to get as much speed as he could. We had living next door to us in the next condo um, was some kids. And I'd like to say that it was like altruistic, like I was worried about the safety of these children, but that's not true. Uh, I just didn't like the noise. It was so loud. Like I don't understand motorcycles or dirt bikes. They're so loud. And so he's riding through one day, and I'm like, I'm fed up. And so I'm in, the up, I'm in the upstairs, and Laura's in the downstairs, and Laura all of a sudden hears me yell out of the window, Hey, kid, this is my property. That's your property. You stay on your property with your stupid dirt bike. And she's mortified, um, but then is laughing because he's like, Where, Who's yelling at me? What's going on? Like, I'm not sure. Um, but he took his dirt bike, and I saved the day. Like, those kids could have gotten hit. Like, I saved the day. Like... So there is a grumpy old man streak running in me, and I would be willing to bet that there's a grumpy old man streak running in all of you as well. And maybe it's not trespassing and loud teenagers that kind of set you off on edge. Maybe it's, maybe it's those people, whoever those people are. We each have different ones. Maybe it's those people who are a part of a different race, or maybe immigrants, or maybe those people who are on a WIC or some kind of social program. Maybe it's those people, those Republicans, or whoever. And maybe it's uh, people who drive too slow. Maybe those people who cut you off that you find yourself shouting, and luckily, or hopefully, the windows, is that you, Jack? That's you. 
I hope you get behind me one day because I'm like the old man driver too. Like uh, five miles under all the time. Laura's like, hey, did you know it's 35 through here or 45 through here? And I'm going like 15 miles an hour. Driving people crazy. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's changes that's happening in your life, in your family, at work. Maybe it's changes that's happening in church because, listen, everything changes. All the time, things are shifting and moving. And maybe those things are, are setting it off in you. Maybe you don't yell at the kids or maybe you don't shout about it. But you know what I'm talking about, that, that feeling inside where you're just like, man, leave it alone. Get off my lawn, right? We know what that feels like. Uh, what's interesting um, is that I think that this emanates, these emotions emanate from a place of fear. Like, we are afraid of being taken advantage of. We are just desperately afraid of being taken advantage of. How often have you uh, pulled up to, you know, the intersection, and there's someone holding a cardboard sign, and you say, if I give them money, they're just going to spend it on booze. They're just going to spend it on drugs. They're just going to waste it. How often have you helped somebody and maybe they didn't reciprocate or help you or maybe they didn't thank you in the way that you wanted to be thanked or maybe you did something around the church and no one noticed. And so you're like, well, I'm never helping them again, right? Because you took advantage of me. I helped and then you didn't do anything nice for me and I'm not helping you again. How many relationships have been ruined over money? Like the most inane thing in all of our lives, the thing that it comes and it goes and we have a little bit then we lose it all. It, it, the, the most meaningless thing in our lives and yet we destroy whole families, whole relationships, friendships that have lasted for years over something as insane as money. And we say and we look and we say, well, I can't per- believe that person's getting so offended or so upset about that thing, whatever it is. And then it happens to us and we say, by God, I will not be taken advantage of. Right? It won't happen to me. And what's interesting, I think, at the same time as we have this, this selfish fear running in us, is Jesus doesn't seem to have that. The thing I love about the Gospels, or I have been loving about the Gospels as I've been reading through them recently, are the miracles. Jesus goes around and he heals people. He, he, this guy is blind. In bizarre ways, like just the strangest things. He like spits in the ground and he makes some mud. He puts it on a guy's eyes and he says, go wash him off. Like how weird is that? Like what is that? And, and so he's doing all these bizarre things and you know, people are healing. The guy can see now and he never says, you know, hey, I just healed your sight. How about a 20, you know? Buy me lunch. Or maybe something more reasonable. How about come and follow me? Like, I just healed you. You were crippled. You couldn't walk. And now all of a sudden you can stand up and you can leap and you can jump and you can praise God. How about you come and follow me, become my disciple? He doesn't ask for any of that. In fact, what Jesus does most of the time is say, hey, listen, I know that something incredible just happened in your life and you're looking at me and thinking, this guy's amazing. Don't tell anybody about it. Let's just keep this between us. What a bizarre thing to do. There's a story in Luke chapter 17. I'm sorry, chapter 16. No, I was right the first time. Chapter 17. Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. I'm just going to read this. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along Samaria and Galilee. So if you think of Israel in your mind, you have Galilee up here, you have Samaria underneath it, and then you have uh, Judah underneath it where Jerusalem is located. And Jesus is passing between these two, and the Samaritans were kind of like the bad guys, the, the half-breeds, the illegal immigrants, you know, the people, the, those people. 
And as he was passing through, he met ten lepers, and they stood at a distance. You have to remember that lepers weren't allowed to be in the town, and so they would gather together in little leper colonies, and and they would support one another as much as they could because they needed it, because they got no help from the town, maybe some alms tossed at them or some stale bread. But if they were going to depend on anyone, it's going to be the other lepers in the group. And so they're standing at a distance just like they're supposed to, and they shout to Jesus. They say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went along the way, as they're walking away from Jesus, they're cleansed, they're healed, they're made well again. And then in verse 15, one of them turned back when he saw that he was healed. And he began praising God with a loud voice. And he came and he fell on his face, the bowing thing Jack was talking about, at Jesus' feet, and he gives him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. What a strange story. What I find strange about this story is that it's almost as if Jesus doesn't expect anything from them in the first place. I mean, he doesn't do anything miraculous right there. He says, hey, all right, fine. Go and show the priest that you're well. And as they're walking away, they finally see, oh my goodness, I'm well again. And Jesus doesn't even seem to expect them to come back or to thank him. Otherwise, he would have healed them right on the spot. But he doesn't do that. He says, go away, right? Go show yourself to the priest then. Then when one finally comes back, he's sort of surprised. Oh, oh, you're here to say thanks. Good. Wait, why is there only one of you? Didn't I heal nine of you? And then, uh, or didn't I heal ten of you? Where are the other nine? And then he says to him, finally, just, well, you're, you're healed. Go, go on your way. I mean, in this story, Jesus is completely taken advantage of. Completely taken advantage of. And how concerned does he seem about this? Not at all. Not at all. It's strange to me as I think about the way that I deal with people sometimes with my time, sometimes with my money, sometimes with phone conversations, I often do something very different than what Jesus does. Because Jesus never seems to vet anybody. You notice that? Somebody who's blind, somebody who cries out to him because they're a leper or because they're lame. And he never says, what are you going to do if I heal you? What are you going to do with this gift? He never checks to see how holy they are. He never checks to see what they're going to do with it. He never checks to see if they deserve it. There's none of those questions in his mind. He simply heals them and walks away. And how different that is from us. Jesus, this this, this consummate gift giver, and us who are always checking to see, is that person really worth it? Is that person really worth it? It seems to just strike against the way that we live our lives It's interesting because Jesus seems to command us to be a different kind of people. Helps if I turn it on. Good. In Matthew 5, 42, he says, Give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse the one who wants to borrow from you. And that sounds terrible, right? Let's be honest. That sounds awful. It gets worse. He says in Luke six thirty five, Love your enemies. Do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be called sons and daughters of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And that's good on one hand. That's really good news on one hand, because y'all are ungrateful and evil, right? 
I am too, so it's okay. We're in good company together. And we really depend on the mercy of God. We really need this grace and love and forgiveness that God has to offer us. But then, then it seems like the tables turn. And if this is what God does for you, then you're supposed to do it to other people. And that's really crummy news because the last thing we want to do for our enemies, our enemies, the last thing we want to do is to offer them something without expecting repayment. That's tough. That is a tough word from Jesus. But it reveals something I think very important. It reveals that God is a gift giver. And that if you want to take steps that follow after God, then you have to be a gift giver. Somebody who loves without condition. Somebody who doesn't look for the deserving, but looks for the undeserving. Because what did you deserve from God? What did you deserve from God? And yet he's poured out all of this into you. And so then how dare we look at the children that he has made and the good creation he's made and see them as objects and see them as investments and see them as something that you better pay off after it's all done. Shouldn't we look at people and hope? Shouldn't we look at people and hope and love and seek mercy and humility? I was taking some kids begging one time which sounds weird, but that's what we were doing. We were going house to house. Um, it was like a, we were fasting, and it was, we were talking about poverty and, and things like that, situations like that in America and across the world. And so I had about 10 teenagers with me, and they were dragging um, wagons full of canned goods. We were just going door to door and asking for canned goods for the, the local food pantry. And so, you know, I've got 10 teenagers. Uh, it's winter, so we're like all bundled up which is a terrible idea. I don't know why I thought it was a good one. But we're all bundled up, you know, and we're dragging these wagons, you know, full of, like, canned goods through, like, snow. And, and uh, we start up this guy's driveway, and sure enough, I hear right from the door, we're not even to the, we're not even to the porch yet, and I hear, hey, get out of here! And he starts shouting at these guys. Now, it's a little bit late at night, and I know the most threatening thing that you could encounter is teenagers with canned goods, but I was just thinking, man, calm down. Like, it's, It's okay. We're backing up. Like, keep the shotgun on the shelf. But we're so afraid of being taken advantage of. We're so afraid that somebody's going to waste their time or waste our money, and I will not be taken advantage of. Get off my lawn. This comes up out of us, but for Jesus, for Jesus, there's something different going on. And I want to suggest that for the followers of Jesus, something different is going on as well. That for the followers of Jesus, we aren't so afraid of being taken advantage of. Because the root of our gift giving is not the response of those who receive it, but rather the gift that God responds to us with, filling us with joy, recognizing the good things that we do. You remember what Jesus said when he talked about giving? He said, don't let your right hand know. A low rumble in the crowd. Good, though. Right. Most of you had that right. What your left hand is doing. Don't, don't, don't do something in front of everybody so that you can receive accolades because God who sees in secret can reward you openly. But if you get the reward openly from everyone else, if the person who you bless thanks and dances and shouts and tells everybody, look at what Jordan did for me, then what's the reward that God's going to give me? Nothing. You've already received it. And so give in secret and don't worry about the response of the individual because who you should be worried about is that gift-giving God who's going to see and reward and love and fill you with a joy that is beyond comprehension. And so I want to suggest to you today that instead of saying, 
get off my lawn. Maybe we should just let the kids play in the lawn. Maybe we should let them dance and play, and who cares if they kick over a flower or a bush? Let them dance in the lawn. Let them have fun. But I think that this runs even a little bit deeper for us because it's not just that we're so afraid or what I maybe should say is that what's the root of that fear of being taken advantage of? The root of that fear is that we have bought into the belief that we live in a world of scarcity. That there is a finite amount of of everything and if I don't don't get what's mine, then who's going to give it to me? And if I don't protect what's mine, then someone's going to take it. And there's just, you know, a finite amount of parking spaces in the world, right? I mean, have you ever felt that? Finite amount of parking spaces in the world, a finite amount of money, a finite amount of food, a finite amount of love and attention and affection and grace, a finite amount of everything. And because there's only so much, I have to keep what I've got. I've got to hoard it. I've got to protect it. I've got to grab a hold of it and never let it go because if I do, then it's gone and I'm lost and I'm going to end up with nothing. We believe that we live in a world of scarcity, and we see this in all kinds of ways. We see this with our church traditions, and I don't care how old you are, there is a church tradition in your heart that you've got your claws dug into deep. And if someone messes with it, the claws are coming out and coming for that person, right? Come on, God's people, you know there's an amen right there. We also have church doctrine, which we believe, church doctrine that we know is true, church doctrine that we could defend, but we've got our claws dug in so deep that if somebody questions that, man, we're ready to kick them out of the church, tar and feather them, throw them out of town. Don't you dare question that doctrine. We got our claws dug in deep to them. We're closed off to it, not willing to listen to somebody, let them explore and question, and assuming then that if it's true, And if it's good, and if it's from God, it might take a year, but that person's going to come around and see the truth because it's true. We don't put any trust in the Holy Spirit. We don't put any trust in the Scriptures. We don't put any trust in the process that God is working in the lives of people. But instead, we insist that people are the same when they come in that door. You've got to be the same, just like us, accepting what we accept, believing what we believe, and we're not going to give you any time to grow into it. And that, to me, is insane. Because if we truly believe in the diversity that God has made in the world is good and wonderful, as the scriptures seem to say it is, then why are we insisting on cookie-cutter Christians? Right? We got our claws in deep. So we're afraid. We're so afraid. We're afraid, of, and, and, and we're afraid because there's a finite amount of attention and affection and jealousy. It was interesting yesterday... We're sitting around the lunch table, and I'm in the kitchen doing something, and Laura and Emery are sitting there, and I hear Emery ask Laura a question. She says, who do you love more, daddy or me? Now, she's five, and she's so sweet, right? I mean, she's just the cutest five-year-old. I know this is true, and you all just say amen to this. Like, she's the cutest five-year-old ever to live, and this is true. We all know the answer to the question of who mommy loves more But what's so interesting to me is that at five years old, she has already isolated these words most and more. That there's a finite um, amount of love in mommy, and she's going to have to give a little bit more to someone, and who's it going to be? We learn this from an an early age, and, and we embrace this as a truth. The Bible doesn't. The Bible doesn't. 
In 40 years of wandering around, um, you know, it says in Deuteronomy, as, as Moses is looking back, Deuteronomy 2 verse 7 says, uh, Moses says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the works of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness, and for 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, and you lacked nothing. The scriptures say their clothes didn't wear out, their feet didn't swell up. No gout for 40 years. Praise God, right? I mean, it's amazing. He has protected them. And what's so interesting about that, as as, as I lock the doors of my house at night and then do a little, like, you, like, turn it, like, once just to make sure the lock caught, right? And then you pull a little bit. Anybody? No? Yeah? Just like, to double check, you know, like, you never know. I mean, it's always locked before, but maybe this time, you know, a ghost messed with it. I don't know, you know? Uh, but I lock it, do, you do this little shake, and, and, I, and I think about the Israelites wandering in, in the wilderness for 40 years because the last time I checked, you can't lock a tent, have they invented this yet? If not, you should look into it because you, there's your million dollars right there, a tent that you can lock. They didn't lock anything. They were exposed to wild beasts. They were exposed to their enemies. They couldn't build houses. They couldn't build fences. They didn't dig trenches and wells and, and, and lay out crops so that they would be secure in their food supply for the next, for the next year. Like They couldn't do any of that stuff. And yet they were exposed to everything and yet they were never in danger because God provided all of their needs. And to me, it looks like there is a world that doesn't know scarcity. And there is a God who is not afraid of lacking anything. There's a story in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, and this story appears, interestingly, in all of the Gospels. All of the Gospels. And I think it addresses the even deeper root of that fear, this fear of scarcity that we have, which leads us to this get-off-my-lawn attitude. In John 6, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd is following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus goes up on the mountain, and there he sits down with his disciples. And lifting up his eyes, John 6, verse 5, he lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, he just leans over and says, hey, where are we going to buy bread so all these people can eat? And Philip, I, you, I, I, like the, the sad thing is there's no inflection in the Bible. It doesn't say, and, and Philip did a double take, or Philip snorted, or Philip scoffed, or Philip was like, what are you talking about? That's an insane question. Because there's like 5,000 people standing around here. Philip answers this. I just see him just thinking what a, a sarcastic thing, putting it sarcastically. Where are we to buy bread so these people could eat? Jesus says, and Philip says, 200 denarii worth of the bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have even a little bit. And then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, well, there's a boy here who has uh, five barley loaves and, and two fish, but, you know, I mean, what's that? Like, that's not going to fill me up. That's, that's a snack. It's like Teddy Grahams on the way to Grand Rapids. It's nothing, right? It's getting us nowhere. And what's so interesting is that Philip and Andrew are right, aren't they? I mean, they're right. Jesus asked the question, where are we going to buy food for these people? And they say, nowhere, right? Nowhere. There's no money. There's no store. There's no mosque. No good. We're not doing this, right? It's, it's, it's an insane question. It can't, be, it can't be done. Philip sees this all in practical terms. And I think that we think like Philip and we think like Andrew. We see what's in the world around us in the world around us, what we can count and number off, and we set our sort of our box on God right there. 
And because we have that box set up, of course, it creates in our mind a world of scarcity, a world where I have to protect mine, I have to keep mine, I can't be taken advantage of, get off my lawn. But as I've been reading these stories, uh, 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 the miracle stories, as I've been reading through the Gospels recently, and struck by the miracles, I'm struck by, by what God is doing and my own lack of faith. So I want to tell you a story, and this is kind of a silly story, but it happened to me this week. I was going to help a couple uh, who are moving up from Florida. I've met them a couple times, and they're moving up from Florida, and they needed help moving some things into, uh, into like a storage unit. Laura had an emergency come up, so I had Emery in the back seat. I knew I was only going to be there for like a half an hour, so I didn't like bring changes of clothes. I'm in my dress shirt, you know, and Emery's back there playing on one of her devices. And we're driving down the road, and it starts to rain. And I think, come on, (laughs) come on. And I think to myself, because I'm a good minister, you should pray about this. This is something you should do, right? You talk about this once in a while, Here's something you should do. You should pray about this. And then I think to myself, I don't, is Ellen here today? I don't see Ellen. Ellen's not here today. Okay, good. She's a meteorologist, and I don't know anything really about meteorology, but I do know that there's no spigot in the sky that God can just like, shh, 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 and turn off. Like, I know that there are, there are warm and cold fronts colliding and low and high pressure systems and moisture saturation and water droplets colliding in the sky. I mean, we're talking about a lot of things just because I'm sweet like sugar and melt in the rain, right? I mean, I'm asking God to do a whole lot. But I think you should still pray about this. So I muster all of my faith. I muster all of my, like, and I begin to pray, and I'm praying for the whole situation because I, I barely know these people. I'm just trying to, do, do a good deed, you know, act of grace. And so I'm praying for witness opportunities, praying for all this stuff. And I'm praying for that rain w- would stop at least long enough for us to get through. And I kid you not, I said amen, and the rain stopped. Now, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know if that's a fluke of nature, if that's holy angels. I mean, it wasn't like lightning and thundering. It wasn't like Jesus calming the storm or anything. But it was weird. And I wonder, as I was thinking about all of that, how much do I limit God? How much do I say, you know, this is just too outside of of what God would be willing to do, or this is too outside of what God could do, or how often do I just look at the world and see it as it is and say, this is what it is, and that's all there is, and so I've just got to deal with it as it is, because I live in a world of scarcity, and I have to be concerned about just what I see, instead of allowing God to open up and do something really almost inane, like stopping rain. You know, it's interesting because Jesus in this text tells the people to sit down. In verse 10, he says, have the people sit down. And there was a lot of grass in that place. And so the men sat down. There's about 5,000 in number. So we're not even counting women and children. We're talking about a stadium full of concessions. That's what we need to come up with here. A stadium full of concessions. And he began to distribute to them who were seated. So they also, so also the fish, 
as much as they wanted. And that's an incredible statement. They ate as much as they wanted. And in verse 12, when they had all eaten their fill. So it's not like they all got like a snack pack. It's not like a Lunchable. I mean, it's like Thanksgiving dinner time. I can't eat another bite. Every one of them. And then Jesus says, hey, go through and collect. Because Jesus is, I mean, he's, he's a, you know, he was raised by a good Jewish mom, right? We don't let anything go to waste. So, you know, go and collect all the bits that are left around. And they collect 12 basketfuls of leftovers. What an incredible sign that was. The world is not a world of scarcity. It is a world of abundance. And God can make it that way for our lives. So why are we clutching and clawing? Why are we afraid and grasping? Why are we holding open our hands, our lives, our hearts, our homes? Why aren't we open to new things? It's almost as if we read Jesus and we say, well, it was, it was something that God did one time right here because Jesus is... I mean, it's Jesus, right? I mean, he gets to do cool stuff like that. It's like we didn't read the rest of the Bible because this kind of thing happens all the time. You remember water bursting forth from a stone because Moses' stick hit it. Remember manna falling from heaven. Remember the great breeze that brought the quail for the people. Remember Elijah under the broom tree. Remember the widow of Zarephath. Remember all of the things that God has done as David proclaims in Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. Oh, taste, see that the Lord is good and blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions, the fiercest, right? The fiercest beast, strong, Hungry, they suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord, they lack nothing. This isn't to say that this is kind of like the doctrine that we see with some false teachers who will say something like, well, listen, therefore God wants you to be rich, so pray for that Lexus and baby, you'll get it, right? It's not not saying that, because that doesn't sound like Jesus. It's saying that there is no lack in God, that, 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 That where you have a need, God can fill it. And that is especially good news if you've come here this morning because you're hurting. Because I notice that this attitude comes up in my heart, this get off my long impetus comes up in my heart when I am hurting. And when you are in need and fear and anger, they sort of blend together in this moment and create this fear, this this great old codger inside of us. And if you have brought that here this morning, I want to encourage you to leave it here, to lay it down, to grab an elder, to grab me, to grab some stranger here because we are family here, right? And so we pray for one another. We take care of one another. If you need something, then speak up, share, because we can pray and God can heal. And if we believe that, then let's do that. Share your pain and your hurt. Let it go because this kind of attitude isn't what God wants. This kind of life isn't what God wants out of you. What God wants out of you is for you to remove the fear, to remove the frustration, to remove the anger, to take away the lie of scarcity, to remove the fear of of being taken advantage of. And when we remove all of that junk, when we get rid of that old codger inside of us, we finally made space for faith and joy to meet. And isn't that what we want? We want faith and joy to rule in our hearts. And so that's 
That's what we should be after. We should be after the Samaritan leaping and dancing and praising God and sitting on the grass and letting God provide our fill. And so I want to take you a step further because earlier, just a second ago, I asked you to let the kids play on your lawn, but I want to take it a step further. Why don't you open the shutters, open the door, and go out and play with them? Why don't you go out and play with them? Because that seems to be the way Jesus is. Remember that? The disciples say, These chil- you're children, right? Jesus has important things to do. And Jesus says there's nothing more important than playing with some kids. That's some of the most important things that you could do in a week. So volunteer for our youth ministry, by the way. That's just, that's a free, that's off the cuff there. But we might want to do that, right? There is nothing more important than playing with some kids. If you don't have to worry, if you don't have to fear Because God is the God who laughs at the face of the impossible, who scoffs at the idea of scarcity, then we can remove that crap from our mind and we can allow faith and joy to fill us up. And that allows us to do these really insane things that Jesus suggests that we do, like give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse from the one who would borrow from you. Or love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High, daughters of the Most High. Then your reward will be great. So when we're talking about doctrine, instead of seeing like health and wealth kind of stuff, what we should see is a doctrine of Christian foolishness. Because the cross is foolish to people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 uh, says... For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to, the, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because the cross is, is foolishness, right? I mean, it's foolish to forgive your enemies. It's foolish to forgive and forget. It's foolish to not stake your life on your 401k or your bank account. It's foolish not to put your family at the locust of everything you are. It's foolish not to pursue every single opportunity, no matter what it is. It's foolish to put your trust in a crucified Savior and to say, He raised from the dead and I will walk with him one day. It's foolishness to the world, but to those of us who are being saved, to those of us who are being transformed, it is the power of God. Because think about it, the cross stands as the most visible point of the scarcity of the world. You have but one life to live. And Jesus offered it up. He said, no one takes it from me, I give it away. Jesus offers up his life. And yet the cross doesn't end up being the end of the story, does it? It's not the end. God looks at the cross. He looks at Jesus. He sees him dead. He sees him in the tomb. And God says, no, you will live. And Jesus comes from the grave again because there is no scarcity in God. Not even death has sting anymore. Everything, sin, devil, death, disease, all of that stuff that we experience, all of that stuff that we fear, all of that stuff that we bottle up and allow us to create grudges and wounds and scars and bitterness and anger and hate all of that stuff has been killed on the cross and the God who knows no fear no death no scarcity can fill you with life that doesn't end ever and that is good news so why would we be the people who say get off my lawn why would we be the people that clutch and hold 
Why aren't we the people with open hearts and open hands and open homes, open minds, willing to invite the stranger, the other, even the enemy into our midst and say, let's learn from Jesus together. Let's grow in love together. So I have a challenge for you this week. My challenge is this. Let someone take advantage of you. Do something good for no other reason than it's good. Do something loving for no other reason than it's loving. Do something kind for no other reason than it's kind. And you want to be a son or daughter of God. And don't fear anything. Leave room for God to fill up what you have lost as far as time or money or space or whatever it is. Allow God to fill that up because he wants to prove his scriptures true. That the cross is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. Amen? If you have a decision this morning to make or if perhaps you need some prayer, um, if you need anything, uh, I'll be down here. We'll have an elder down here as well to pray with you, to meet with you, to share with you, to laugh or cry with you. Let today be a moment of change in your life as you see God for who he is. Let's stand as we sing together.